0: you would, take your Bible and turn to John's first letter. If you're a first-time guest with us today, we're certainly glad that you're able to be here. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. First John is just a few pages to the left of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. So, you would join us there, 1 John chapter 2. John has been writing to us about our fellowship with God and our joy in that fellowship. And John makes an emphatic declaration that we are to love our brothers, those of us who are in Christ. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. As it turns out, a loving life is not a life that is just emotionally driven with a bunch of sentimentality that our culture would have us believe. A loving life is one that does not place a hindrance or a stumbling block between the individual and the creator and sustainer of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we seek to love well, uh, we seek to not lay stumbling blocks. In between others and the Lord. We seek, in fact, to encourage others to be reconciled to God. And John then goes on to say in chapter 2 and verses 12 through 14, that we must know that we are forgiven as Christians. He, he seeks to encourage us in between the, the negative declaration we're going to get, or imperative we're going to get to today, and the positive of loving the brothers And he he seeks to encourage us and he says we must know that we are forgiven. And we are forgiven not because of our own abilities, our own works, but because of the name and glory of Christ. And he also encourages us that we would know that we have overcome sin not because of who we are in and of ourselves, but because we have come to be in Christ. And in Christ we have the victory over sin and death. They don't need to wonder this morning as believers if we can overcome sin. All we need to do is turn our eyes upon Jesus and we will know that He has overcome sin. And because we are in Him, so have we. Now that might not bear out in the immediate experience of our lives, but in increasing fashion as we are sanctified into the likeness of Christ, we will experience and one day in glory we will know that all sin from our lives has been vanquished, and not because of our effort, but because of His grace. He also says that we have come and should know that we have come to know the Father because we know Jesus Christ. Remember, John is writing opposed to the Gnostics at this point who said they had a special knowledge and I think it's interesting how John presses in in verses 12-14 through to make the emphasis knowing Jesus. You can know a lot of things but if you don't know Christ you don't know the Father. So he comes with that encouragement. Then he goes on in these verses that we will be in today to warn us That if we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ well, if we are to remove stumbling blocks from their path and their life, it means we are going to have to part with the world. We are going to have to run from what the world is to all of who Christ is. So if you would stand with that in mind and do honor to the reading of God's Word as we begin in 1 John chapter 2. And verse 15. John writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of God to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning knowing that this text has so often been misused and misinterpreted and pridefully um, looked upon. So we pray this morning that you would humble us that we would come under the authority of Your Word, not seeking to Lord over it. Father, that we would be convicted of our sin, and that we would flee to Christ for forgiveness this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. So we lean into this particular passage. I think one of the first things that we're, we have to understand is the use of the word world or cosmos. And, and in understanding that, we need to insulate ourselves against an error that happens all the time in Bible interpretation. And that error is illegitimate, to, uh, illegitimate totality transfer. Big phrase, simple meaning, is that we come to a word and we assume that all the uses that occur at a given time apply in any given circumstance. So we see the word world used in one place and we assume that it means the same thing everywhere. And if we do that with the Word of God, we will err in what John is trying to teach us and what God is speaking to his church. Let me give you a, an example in real life. If you take the word fetch, for instance. Now, I have a dog. His name is Bo. He's a great dog, y'all. He's a fantastic dog. Drives my wife crazy. I think part of the reason why I love him. But if I tell Bo... If I throw a ball and I tell Bo to fetch the ball, he is going to joyfully skip down the hall, slobber all over the ball, and bring it back to me and jump up in my lap. That's That's what Bo's going to do. Now, if I tell my buddy Brian here on the first row, hey, I want to go to lunch. Why don't you go fetch your wife? Now, the first thing that he's going to think is, why are you talking with British terminology? Because we generally don't say go fetch your wife. But... For the sake of this argument, if Brian makes the error of illegitimate totality transfer and thinks that I mean for him to do the same thing to his wife that Bo has just done to the ball, well, Brian's going to come back with two things, a black eye and an angry wife. Because when we say go get your wife, we don't mean skip down the hall towards her, drool all over her, bite her arm and drag her back. That's not what we Intend to say. The use of even that word fetch can mean something different in light of its contextual usage. And so it is with the word cosmos or cosmos, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, It is a word that is translated most often into the English with the gloss of world. And here we are told that we are to run from, that we are to not love. The world, so what is john what is John meaning to say? Well, for the sake of, 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 of greater understanding of how this word is used i 'm going to do something that I normally wouldn 't and i 'm going to go through and give you categories of how this one word is used all throughout the scripture, and this may feel a little bit laborious to go through these different passages because there's actually, and this is arguable uh, about eleven different ways that the word "world." is meant in connection with the context that it is used in the New Testament. Ten in the Gospel of John alone. One, the world can mean, cosmos can mean, the created universe. John 21, verse 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world, the created universe, would not have room for the books that would be written. Cosmos can also mean the earth itself. John 17, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. As you sent me into the earth, so I send them into the earth all over the globe. Cosmos can also mean all men everywhere. John 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Uh, The cosmos can also mean mankind under the creator's judgment the world cannot hate you but it hates me because i testify that what it does is evil jesus speaking there in john chapter 7 it can also mean the public around christ in particular in this context the jews in john 7 verse 4 no one wants to become a public figure acts no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret since you are doing these things Show yourself to the world. Now, is Jesus telling the Pharisees in that context, the Jews, to show themselves to the entire world? No, he's, he's saying, show yourself in this community, in this large group. It can also mean the kingdom of evil forces as related to the earth. John 15, verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, That is why the world hates you. It also can mean the world of unbelievers. The the non-elect. John 17, verse 9. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. God's, it can also mean God's elect among the Jews, or those who consider themselves to be Jews. John 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's a definite group there in that passage. Or it can also mean God's elect of every tribe and nation, His chosen people, all true believers who will be reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. John chapter 16, verse 8. When He comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Oddly enough, and this is not in the Gospel of John, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 uses the word cosmos that is most often translated into the English gloss world. But here it is used differently. It is actually used as a woman's adornment. As the outward apparel of a woman. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. The the word cosmetics that we get today, ladies. When you go into Dillard's and there's the big cosmetics counter. Remember, that cosmetics counter stands there because of the Greek word cosmos. The word that is often translated world. It's, it's given the outward uh, uh, adornment is translated from that same word, which is actually something that I found interesting in this study. I'd never known that before this week. It's clear then that, the, that there is a dynamic usage to this word world. So if we come to the Bible and we say world only means one thing. It only means every person who has ever lived on the entire globe. That's all it can mean. End of story. And I will build my theology on that. Here's the thing, friend. In the year 2021, in America, you have been given religious liberty. And you can, if you choose, make that fatal error. You can illegitimately transfer the meaning of cosmos to mean the same thing in every instance. But if you do that, I promise you, when you come to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, you will fall flat on your face and you will not understand what God is telling you not to love. That's right. The world does not mean everyone in every place at every time in every passage. It simply can't. So what does the word mean here? I mean, this is an emphatic negative. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We need to understand this. What does it mean? And and this passage negatively emphatic, on the heels of a positive imperative to love our brethren. This tells us that loving others, not laying a stumbling block, Will mean in part that we have to part with the world, but what world is it that we are to part from? What world are we not to love? We have to be careful. It's the tendency of most interpreters to come to this passage and to define not only the world but the the the, uh, the categories that are coming in verse sixteen. In such a way that would protect the interpreter themselves from the full meaning of what John is trying to communicate. Because if we can do with the word world what the Jews did with the word neighbor. you remember when Jesus said that we are to love your neighbor as yourself? And there was this push that, well, if we can whittle down who our neighbor is to a small group of people we like, then we can do it. Well, we'll do the same thing with the word, word world. If we can narrow the world down to a small group of people who act in a way that really just irritates the fire out of us, boy, this text could be really usage or useful because it will justify us in our sin of hating a group of people. But we don't want to do that. We want to allow what the Spirit of God intended to speak through John to his church to have weight and impact in our lives, don't we? Uh, We want to hate the world as John, as God, intends us to. We have to be very careful that we allow this text to have room in our hearts, to point out the errors in our own lives. Now, there are two main errors when we interpret the word world. The first is to have an ascetic uh, understanding, to, to have this view that's almost monastic, That what John is saying here is that we need to completely cut ourselves off from the world. We need to go to Maui and have a vacation and not have anything to do with the rest of the world. Honolulu, Hawaii, wherever you can find a secluded place where you won't see another individual, that's fine. That must be what John is saying here. Not. Uh, And we see this all throughout religious history especially in the Catholic Church that, that continues to have this idea dividing secular life from what is sacred and holy and, and you need to divide those who are really going to lead. From, and and, and that kind of thinking just breaks down. We don't find that here in this text. We're, we're not being instructed here to go out of the world altogether. Oh, this isn't a, a passage that tells us to isolate ourselves physically from the world. So that's the first error, is to interpret it as cutting ourselves off from the world. The second one is what I was speaking of earlier, which is an incomplete interpretation. Instead of taking the word world as intended, we will limit it, we will incompletely interpret it to mean a group of people that we are against removing any area of guilt in our own life. If we tend to be very... Zealous political people, what we will tend to do with this passage is our political opponents will become the world. Or if we have a particular denominational preference, we will tend to look at other denominations as worldly. Or we'll come to this passage and we'll think of all the social taboos that we were raised with. The things we were taught were inappropriate by our parents or our caregiver. And we will say, well, the world is the group of people that does all of the things that my daddy told me not to do. That's not the world as it's intended in this passage. It's much broader than that. what ends up happening if we incompletely interpret the word world, if we make the world just a group of people that we disagree with, what we will do is we will wind up having contempt and we will end up puffing ourselves up that we are better than what we really are. Here, the aim is that we ourselves as individual Christians would not be worldly. The point of this passage tempts us to look out at the world and find what we think is wrong and label it as being wrong, all the while missing what's going on in our own hearts and lives. And I think part of what John is encouraging the church to do is stop and, and take stock of their own hearts, of each of our own lives individually, and to see where the world has crept into the church, where the world is at work in our hearts, in our lives. You see, the reality is John comes to us with the assumption that we know the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But we are of God. We are different. We are to walk in fellowship with God because we have been born of the Spirit of God and so we are to be distinct and separate from this world. So again, the question, Jay, what is the world? Well... Is he saying here, church, I want you to hate the world, the created earth. You need, to, you need to, in a physical sense, ignore the mountains and the streams and the oceans, the moon and the stars. If, if you cut yourself off from those things and you ignore them, then you will lead a godly life. Of course that's not what he means. In fact, to encourage this, and this actually has been the interpretation of some is to cut off humanity and cut the church off from general revelation, from God displaying His glory through His creation. And here we are not being given an encouragement that we shouldn't look at the stars and at the moon and at all that God has created and be in awe of the Creator and worship Him for His handiwork. He's not saying that that is the world that we are to hate he's also not talking about the life of the world in a general sense he's not talking about the things that are part of being a human on the earth he's not saying that you should despise having a vocation that there's a whole idea in the this catholic viewpoint that there are sacred people who have vocations that that are meaningful to god and then there's just the secular work in the world that doesn't matter and that's an error We actually are given meaningful work as part of our being image bearers of God. We are given family. We are given marriage. We are given relationships. And John isn't here trying to encourage us to despise those things. Some people come to this passage and they use it to prop up a view of ministry that says, well, people who are part of the clergy shouldn't be engaged in the world. Therefore, they shouldn't be married. But that's not the world that John is talking about here. God values all of these institutions that He created for our good and for His glory. That's not the kind of world that we are to hate. So, let's get a definition by borrowing from one of the texts that I mentioned earlier. John chapter 15, verse 19. If you belong to the world, Jesus said, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. Why? But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The world that John is talking about in John 15 verse 19 that Jesus is talking about there is the same world that he's talking about here in 1 John chapter 2. And it is the kingdom of evil forces as related to the earth. That is what is meant here. We are not to live our lives for the things of the fallen system that are opposed to God. We know that God created the earth and all that is in it for the good of man and for his glory. But we also know that Satan entered the world, tempted Adam and Eve, and that the entire human race has fallen into sin. And what John is pointing out here is that we are not to live our lives like the rest of fallen humanity and the fallen world's system. We are not to press our lives into... Now, we are going to have to live in a world that has fallen... But we are not to live our lives seeking to please that fallen system, seeking to honor the dictates and the authorities and the rules of that fallen, broken ideology. In fact, John goes on to clarify the characteristics of what this worldly type of existence are, what the kind of life, worldly life, looks like in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's from the kingdom of darkness. It's from Satan. These things, these three categories that are given clearly, delineate and define what the world is is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, some of you might have a translation that I believe better translates the the word here because there's a prefix to the Greek word epa, which takes the usage of, I think, the word desire and launches it to what it should be, which is lust, and we'll get to that in a minute, but for the sake of argument, I think it should be the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, what we know is that we are each created with given desires. And it's not wrong to have desires per se. God has granted us certain desires that lead to a good life and flourishing. There's a reasonable desire for food and drink. There's a reasonable desire for relationships. There's a reasonable desire for... Uh, to provide well as as a parent or as a father, as a caregiver. There's reasonable desires sexually. And these are not bad in and of themselves. But what happens is they go wrong when those desires are not governed and controlled by God Himself. When our conscience and and our living is not not lorded over by God, what happens is our desires rule, and that rule of desires in our life is what we call lust. Uh, We were originally created with with our minds connected with the Lord and, and God having lordship over our conscience and our mind and that affected our desires and that ultimately affected how we live but everything is upended because we as fallen sinners by nature are given over to our desires and and what John is saying here is the desires of the flesh that consume us, the things that ultimately bring us to the point where our flesh and not the Spirit of God control how we live is ultimately of the world and not of God. What what John is aiming at here is any lust that is rooted in in the nature of our flesh that controls our life. Now this can be drinking to excess, it can be food, it can be a desire for sexual activity... But it ultimately is a desire that has been, has been contorted by Satan to ultimately control the individual in such a way that they will destroy themselves. Some people will say, you know, it's not fair that God doesn't save the entire human race. What kind of God is this that you preach if you say He's not going to save everyone? Because obviously everybody would want to be saved. The simple reality is that's not true. Fallen humanity is given over to the desires of its flesh. And God doesn't push fallen humanity into destruction. Fallen man willingly carries himself to destruction. Offers himself up to destruction through the lust of the flesh. Through the desires of the flesh. And John here is saying, look, church, you must not be governed by your fleshly desires. Those things can't rule. He's not seeking to shame everyone for having normal human appetites. He's saying don't give yourself over to abusing yourself, abusing others, or abusing God's creation because of the desires of your flesh. All of these things are given to you for your good and for the flourishing of your community when they are used in their appropriate context. So that is what it means. The desires or the lust of the flesh to allow the desires of your natural man to control every aspect of your life. Secondly, he goes on to point out the desires of the eyes. Now this is defined by living in such a way that we major on outward appearance. We're all about looks. We're all about what is on the exterior. We live for what we see. It is to live a life seeking to please yourself with what you can see with your natural eye and we remember almost intuitively i think matthew chapter 5 where jesus says you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but i say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart i had somebody read that verse to me one time and they said well the jesus said if you look at a woman with lust in your heart you might as well go ahead and commit adultery No, that's not what Jesus said. Not even close to what Jesus said. What Jesus is doing in that passage is He is linking the reality that what we see with our eyes turns into a vanity and a desire that connects to our heart and we use our imagination, we use the, the, the desires of our flesh and all of that links together to bring us to a point of ruin. It, it, it's connected with the sins of the vanity in the mind. We, we see something that is appealing to the eye and we desire it. We we toy with things in the vanity of our heart and the vanity of our minds. This doesn't just have to do... Lust of the eyes is not just something that has to do sexually. Both of these categories, I think, far too often are interpreted narrowly as only meaning in the direction of sexual expression. I think even the word lust has become limited in its application to that type of expression. And that's not what is being said here. In fact, I I think individuals who live their lives seeking only the outward adorning, constantly worried about what they wear, do I look good, and and all of those things are living in the worldly system of lust of the eyes. In fact, I think that's why it's interesting that 1 Peter chapter 3, the verse that uses the word cosmos for outward adornment, says your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Now that doesn't mean that you can't do any of those things. It just simply means that your identity, who you are, should not be so, inter, so closely knitted to those outward things that that is what you are given over to. That the, the desire to have a decent appearance doesn't override the desire that your inward self would be renewed and that you would be fashioned into the likeness of Christ. And then we come to the final category of what it means to be in the world, and that is the pride of life. The pride of life is a self-glorification. It it includes kind of two aspects, an ambitious nature and a contempt for others. It is a way of life that you you look at yourself as being better than than everyone else. And often it's very subtle. Pride creeps in and, and you think, well, Look, I'm better than the next guy. At least I'm not like him. That's a pride of life. It can come into areas of birth. You're part of a particular family or race or vocation. You have a, a, a vocation that garners a lot of public praise and attention. I find even education can tempt us into the pride of life. Well, I graduated from, and fill in the blank. I've known believers who, if they graduated from a certain Christian university, they felt like they were better in their spiritual walk than the next guy. They graduated from a secular institution. But here's the reality. We're not saved by our diploma. We're saved by grace. We can have the pride of life and the power the influence that we wield. Now, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. They're bad when we wield them for our own prideful end. We we can have pride in our social status. We can have the pride of life in this sinful life we live in and of itself. There are people who will glory in their own shame, who will be prideful about the fact that they have committed certain atrocious sins. Oddly, and I think this is what we need to hear in the body of Christ more than anything, that we can insulate ourselves against this and repent from it, is this can infect a church in a pride that we have over some members in the body. Uh, we, we see someone that comes to Christ and they're new in their faith and they're still struggling with particular sins in their life and, and we kind of puff ourselves up and we go, well, I don't sin the way they do. That's the pride of life, to have contempt for others because they don't measure up for your uh, to your standards. We set ourselves up as though as though we were spiritually superior to our neighbor. It's interesting that that Paul tells us that we are saved by grace. It's not of works. And why? Why does he say that? He says, so so that no one would boast in the presence of God. It, It turns out that the gospel of grace, defined by grace, is really the only gospel. Because not only should we not boast when we are in glory before the throne of God, we must realize that God is omnipresent. And in the earth, we should not boast of our spiritual status over our neighbor. We should not glory in where we are spiritually. Because the second that we do that, we are trafficking in the pride of life. Uh, We are living in a way that really reveals to the rest of the world that we are the most spiritually immature person in the room. You know, the kind of individual that says, Dallas, I've I've never had a drink. I've never smoked. I've never kissed a girl I wasn't married to. All of those things. Look at me in all of my glory. No, puke. It took just as much of... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to ransom the individual in that condition as it did the individual who lived long years neck deep in sins that were socially taboo we're not to live in the pride of life and this is the sin that i see creeping in all over the place and i even think you know it, denominations are not i don't know why denominations have gotten bad press in our generation well we should not have divisions uh, brother i think that when you read your bible you should diligently seek to interpret it well and if that means that you've got to go somewhere else on sunday morning for church that's okay what it doesn't mean is i don't have to hate you right and those divisions of denominations shouldn't cause us to go, well, look at us. <clears throat> we are Baptists. I mean, we're great. Are you kidding me? I mean, if we really are proclaiming the Gospel as a Baptist church, then what we are saying is Baptists are so awful that the only begotten Son of God had to die so that we could see glory. Don't traffic in the pride of life. Or, or, or people who have walked in the Lord for years... And they see some teenage kid or some child in the youth ministry who comes in and they don't know how to behave. And they have contempt on that child. What a pathetic thing. Because as believers, when we display that type of pride of life, where we arrogantly lord that we are better over another individual, now hardly ever will somebody actually say that they're better. It always comes in dispositional sin, in the, in the inflections, in the way that we talk about other people. What we are really saying is that we have forgotten what it took to bring us into right relationship with God. When we walk in the pride of life, we are publicly declaring that we have forgotten the joy of our fellowship with the Father through the Son by the grace of the Spirit alone. That is what we are doing. When when, when we, when we puff ourselves up in our theological knowledge, we're walking in the pride of life. We are saved by grace, not because we have our theological ducks in the row. Right? So we need to be very careful that this, the pride of life, does not creep into our Lives. If you remember the background again here, John is riding against the Gnostics, the individuals who were delineating the material from the immaterial world and saying everything immaterial or spiritual is good, everything material is bad. We might as well use our bodies however we want to and indulge in sin however. And we have a special knowledge. There was pride, there was lust of the eyes, there was lust of the flesh. All of it was encompassed in what the Gnostics were doing. And John is saying here clearly, look, you don't even know the Father. You don't know the Gospel. You don't understand what you are saying. I want you to see that in this list, lust of the the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, the Bible often... And I'll leave this to some open interpretation. I don't want to be overly emphatic about this. But the Bible often, when the writers are writing, they write in a, in a way that as you move on in the list, it gets weightier and weightier. And I think that's what's happening here. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And sometimes we can come to sins of, the, uh, of a spiritual nature, of being prideful, and we think, well, that's not as bad. I think actually what John is communicating is that if you are in Christ and you're prideful about that and you seek to lord that over someone else in a way that you're better than them, you're actually in the worst spiritual place out of anybody. There's something natural about and I'm not saying I'm not trying to justify, I'm not saying they're right, but there's something natural about the sins that come out of our fleshly desires. But when you have been saved by grace alone, and what creeps into your heart out of that grace is pride, John is saying, pause, hard stop. You may not be in Christ at all. You may have lived a righteous life. You may have not committed a list of sins, you may be reading your Bible continually, but if you are given over to the pride of life, that is completely contradictory to who the Savior actually is. It's contradictory to what He has revealed of Himself. So then we go on knowing what the world is, I think, then. Why should we not love the world? Well, the first thing that John says in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If we love the world, we don't know God or have love in our hearts for Him. If we are given over to lust, controlled by the things of this disordered evil world, then we have not been born again. It's that clear. James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world takes himself makes himself an enemy of God, we should lament this verse this morning. And the reality that many churches have bought into a paradigm that says we have to be friendly to the world. We have to to bring the systems of the world into the church so that people will come so that we can tell them about Jesus. And John says, no. If you do those things, if if you are given over to the systems of the world, you are not leaning into the gospel of grace and you are not born of God. That's what he's saying. That's why we're not to love the world. The only way to genuinely love people is to abide in Christ and not to put stumbling blocks between them and Christ. Secondly, Love of the world is a denial of our new birth. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It doesn't come out of the Father. It comes out of the world. And he's, he, he, if we compare that with chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are out of, that we come out of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John is setting up in the mind of the church, look, the world has come out of Satan, ultimately, out of the destruction of the fall. And if the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is what dominates your, your existence, you need to know those things don't come from God. Therefore, because the Christian is one who has been born of God, born of the work of the Spirit alone, if you are ruled by these things, know that that's not, that, doesn't, that doesn't jive with actually being born of God. It just doesn't. You are still in your sin. You are still lost. Christians are people who have the life of Christ in them. They've been born of the Spirit. Their values are going to increasingly, as the work of sanctification goes on in their life through the work of the Spirit, be aligned to who Christ was Himself. And listen to the Beatitudes as He begins the Sermon on the Mount. And think about this in contrast to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and reject you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If we live our lives seeking to please the world and gratify our eyes and the the desires of our flesh and we walk in pride, we ultimately reveal that God hasn't birthed us at all anew. We also see that the life of the world denies, and this is the ultimate reality, life, the life of the world denies the glory of the cross. You remember Paul writing to the Galatians in chapter 6 verse 14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are completely contrary to the glory of the cross. You can't be fixed on Jesus. You can't turn your eyes upon Him and be delighting in Him and glorying in what He has done to ransom you from hell and to give you a place eternally before Him if you are indulging in a life that is committed to those categories in the world. If you are living your life for the world. You know, what is interesting and what we have to again let this passage have its full weight in our hearts is that when, when Paul says, far be it for me to boast in the cross, uh, 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 boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I believe the first world he's talking about is not the world down at the bar. It's not the immoral world, although it includes all of that. I think for, for Paul, the religious man, you know, the first world that had to be crucified to Him was all of His religious righteousness. All of His goodness. All of the things that He knew as a scholar. And He came to know Jesus. And He came to know that it was by grace and grace alone that He was stopped on that day to, to, on, on the road to Damascus. And he was interrupted in His life of rebellion and rejection of God. And He was interrupted by grace. And that grace changed his life. No longer did the pride that had so often carried him to, to martyr the early century Christians have rule and reign in his life. No longer did the pride of his eyes wearing all of the, the particular pharisaical vestments rule over him. No longer did the lust of his flesh ultimately rule. Now, did he struggle with those things? I'm certain that he did, as we all do in Christ. But he did not allow them to control all of who he was and what he did. He ultimately gave way to the goodness of the kingdom of heaven. Each of these things places the the lust of the eyes, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life what we need to, if we take nothing else away today, what we need to see in those categories, do you know where all of those things lead? They ultimately lead to man being glorified in and of himself and then beyond that, death. And what the gospel is, is completely contrary to those things because it's not centered on man being gratified in his flesh, it's centered on God being glorified in his Son. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world and its lust, they're going to die, friends. If you love the world, you're going to die with it. And I say that out of love. If you have built a life on gaining the whole world, knowing this or that, having a particular kind of education, being wealthy or rich or having a particular social status or you pride yourself on your outward beauty, know this, that even if you can't feel it at this moment, all of those things are going to crumble. And the only thing that will remain is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and what john is doing is he's saying to the church be diligent make sure that you're not living your life in religious vanity but that you are living your life honestly to the glory of god colossians chapter 1 verse 17 and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, him, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile himself to Himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Beloved, we are to flee from the things of this earth, and we are to do the will of God. And what is that will? But to love the church... And to seek to remove stumbling blocks from the lives of others that they might see the glory of Jesus clearly. And we must beg everyone we come into contact with to be reconciled to God. If you're here this morning and you've never turned in repentance to Christ, I beg you this morning on the authority of the Word of God, if somebody has duped you into believing that you can have a certain type of relationship with Jesus where you go to church on Sunday and then you live the rest of your life however you want, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is a distortion of the truth. And it is Satan's device to take many away into perdition. What the Bible says plainly is this, every one of us is born in our trespasses and sins. All of us hating God and running from God. And the only way that we will ever make our way back to God is by His grace. And in His grace, He sent His only begotten Son into the world that whoever would believe upon Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus said, not Jay, the pastor, but Jesus said that you must turn in repentance and faith to Him if you will have eternal life. So if you're here today and you think that you're a Christian, but you think throughout all of your life, for I've lived in the desires of my flesh, I've lived in the desires, the lust of my eyes. I've lived in the pride of life. Beloved, run to Christ. Run to Jesus. Place your faith in His finished work and in that alone. Don't hold on to your religion. Don't hold on to your church membership. Don't hold on to the fact that you've been a deacon for years. Don't hold on to the pastorate. Don't hold on to anything but Christ and Christ alone. Because it is only He can save. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence acknowledging the reality of our flesh and our eyes and our pride and all of the lusts of this world that seek to take us away from the cross. But your cross is glorious. Your cross ultimately bears out the reality that you will display Your justice in all of the earth. And Father, this morning I pray that every one of us who are in Christ, that we would be humbled by this passage, that we would seek areas of our lives where we are walking in the desires of our flesh, we're walking in the desires of our eyes or the pride of life, and that we would repent of those things and and remember that we have an advocate in Christ, that He is there pleading His blood over our sin even yet. Father, for those who are not in Christ who have lived lives in the world, I pray that you would do what only you can do and bring them out of the world. Give them new life for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.